Hello, I'm David Gibson. I'm the executive editor for Journal of Ecology, and I'm sitting here today with uh, Deborah Goldberg. Delighted to be here. And we're going to um, talk for a few minutes um, about her, her research background, her research interests, as part of the journal's Living Ecologist series, where we um, have a podcast, uh, a blog post, and highlight some of um, Deborah's papers in the journal. So, a bit of background. Um, Deborah Goldberg is the Elzada U. Clover Collegiate Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Michigan. She's been on the faculty there since 1983 and has held just about every post that there seems to be at the university or in the department level, department chair, director of the herbarium, and a whole host of other things. Along the way, uh, Deborah has published over 85 journal publications and uh, two editions of a, uh, a well received population ecology textbook. And her papers have accrued an H-index of 36, which means uh, she has published 36 papers that have been cited 36 or more times, which is a very high score. and tells us a lot about the, the value of that, of that work. So let's start, uh, Deborah, by uh, you giving us some background to, the, to, to your research interests and, mm -hmm. and how you kind of got there. Okay. So my general areas of research have always been in plant more community ecology, interested in how communities are assembled, what they, which species, how many of them, and why. And more recently, going along with the way the whole field has moved, thinking a lot more about what are the consequences of patterns in community structure and dynamics. So I started, that interest goes back to my time in graduate school when I was in a department, one of the very first departments of ecology and evolutionary biology, that had a very strong tradition of uh, what was then the kind of exciting stage of the early stages of community ecology as developed by Robert MacArthur and his students. This was at the University of Arizona. This was at University of Arizona, yes. And this was um, a group of MacArthur's students and people who have worked with him, Bill Schaefer, Jim Brown, Ron Pulliam, and Michael Rosenzweig, who had all worked with, with MacArthur or had been one of his students, came together to build what they viewed was going to be one of the major centers of ecology and evolutionary biology that was going to be at the University of Arizona. So it was an incredibly exciting time to be there. And I came and was absorbing these ideas about relatively, in retrospect, quite simple ways of thinking about community ecology, if we knew some basic things about how species differed in resource use, we could simply take these utilization patterns, distributions, and say something about which species were going to coexist and not. In retrospect, of course, that was all fairly, very oversimplified. But at the time, it was both, for me, very exciting and, as a plant ecologist, and these were all people working on birds or mammals, um, I kept thinking, this doesn't make sense for plants. And so I spent a lot of time as a graduate student thinking about, oh, well, what is it? Why are plants different? Are they different? And that led me into what kind of what I think of as a lot of my career of saying, uh, almost a kind of negative point of view of saying, no, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. And then trying to come back and say, well, what does work? 
And so a lot of my early thinking was about the process of competition and this idea that we could, at the time, think about competitive interactions as entirely predictable from some static descriptions either of morphology or of um, simple patterns of co-occurrence. And from that, we could understand the processes that were going on. And as an aside, I have to say that that idea has come back bid time over the last five to 10 years that we could simply use these patterns of now we're talking about this is trait-based ecology to understand communities. And I think some of the same problems that we had back in the early 80s over that are still there. And we seem to be going through that cycle again of realizing that, no, we can't always infer process from pattern. But we are more experimental now than we were then. I think at that time it was more observational, making inferences from right. patterns. Right. And we've gone, certainly we've gone through, you know, if we think about the history right after that time, we all said, you know, after the whole Florida State um, ideas and, and Simberloff and, and um, Strong, that we can't infer a process from pattern, we went into a very strong experimental phase. And that's still there. That's oh, absolutely, absolutely yeah. still there. But the trait-based ecology and the phylogenetic approaches to ecology have tried to go back to that, how can we infer processes without, mm -hmm. can we short-circuit those experiments again? And we're tremendously more sophisticated in, in how those null models are done and, and how we're... But there's still an element of needing to remember those lessons. Mm -hmm. And have we right gone there. from thinking about interactions as being pretty much just competition to now oh. broader... Much broader. Uh, you know, and again, the history of community ecology is it was competition, then it was predation, then, oh my goodness, we've forgotten about positive interactions and facilitation yeah. and mutualisms. And to my mind, and I spend an awful lot of my career working on competition, I think in plant communities, competition is not particular. For competition for resources, the classic definition of competition, mm. is not particularly important. And that's because there's never just one interaction going on. It's never just competing for light or nutrients. There are also always positive interactions going on. There are interactions mediated through changes in ecosystem processes. There are changes mediated through microbial communities that we know a lot more about now. And so the net effects are positive, negative, and they're not distinctly different kinds of interactions, what we always have is the net outcome of multiple processes going on simultaneously. Yes, you, you talk about uh, non-trophic interactions. Yeah. Well, is that what you mean? That's exactly what I mean. That not you know, our classic way of thinking, our classic models of interactions are about resources. It's about competition for resources or you know, paired consumer resource mm -hmm. interactions. So that's all trophic. That's all through food. Mm. But in fact, as soon as you think about interactions mediated by microbes or interactions mediated by uh, modification of microclimate um, or modification of herbivory relationships, all of those things are not necessarily going through competing over food, which is the trophic mm. interactions. So. I find, you know, I, we all have lots of data showing that the relationships change from negative to positive. 
um, between years, between species, within the same season, between different life history stages. The net outcome is a result of, it's a balance of all of those mm -hmm. things going on. So, so Tillman's models are too simple? Oh, yeah. <laughs> of course they are. And he knows that, too, okay. um, obviously. Uh, very enlightening. But I'm not really sure that competition, that the most important part of that balance of net outcomes, mm -hmm. of you know, all those processes, that the competition is the most important part. Mm -hmm. I'm really not... Despite the fact that it's been a major theme of my career, I am no longer convinced <laughs> that it's particularly important. Well, you've made big contributions regardless. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of your work seems to be done in grasslands or old fields. Is mm -hmm. that the habitat you, you think is important to look at these questions in? Or just no, where you, where they were easy. easy. They were relatively easy. In fact, I have to say, as soon as I got tenure, I said I'm never working in an old field again. <laughs> 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 because they were relatively easy communities to work in. Um, my favorite community are deserts, mm -hmm. and I work there when I can, but based at Michigan, that hasn't always been easy, mm -hmm. and, um, but I've been working in wetlands on and off for the last 10 years, mm -hmm. and again, there are herbaceous communities that are relatively easy to work in, but unlike old fields, they're not successional, and therefore you could look at questions about long-term coexistence which you can't do in, in old fields very effectively. So Let's think about some of your, your early work then. There's a couple of papers that um, attracted a lot of attention, got cited a lot of well-known, and that was the, um, you, well, you had a few papers on competitive effect and response, uh, uh, working with uh, Fleetwood and Lander, 87 and 91, and then uh, with Nova Plansky, the role of relative importance of competition in unproductive environments. Um, those papers and some others, they brought out this idea of competitive effect and response. So where did that come from, that idea, the realization? Yeah. That um, you know, I'm, I was trying to think about that. Yeah. It's, it's been a long time, and where did they come from? I think they actually came from a question that I was asked in my dissertation defense. Really? Yeah. So I was asked, I had done experiments as part of my dissertation that, in retrospect, were questions all about uh, comparing a competitive effect in different environments. So just looking at the effect of vegetation and why it was different in different habitats. doesn't matter why now. And I think it was Jim Brown who said, well, what about comparing different species and how they respond to that? Is that the same thing? Mm -hmm. I said, no, of course not. Yeah. And then I had to start thinking about the whole process. And I had a postdoc advisor, Pat Werner, who was incredibly encouraging about, you know, as I, I started trying to explore those ideas, was very, very um, supportive of those. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that whole idea really, I think, changed the way we think about competition, thinking of it from two sides. Yeah. And it's still very important. It's, it, it seems to me it's a, it's a concept that sometimes is difficult for students to grasp at first. And if you find that when you... Oh, I find it all the time. I still have a hard time getting it across sometimes with... In fact, sometimes my own students don't get it, and then I get really worried. <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> yeah. But it's in all the textbooks. Yeah, I mean, yeah. The, the idea. So it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, a key, it's, it's a key insight. Yeah. Uh, how is that received I mean, um, by, the, by the field? I think it was one of those... It's, it's not... A particularly deep insight. It's a. It's one of those things that once you point it out, everybody says, "Oh, of course." 
you can compare this way or you can compare that way or I, along a matrix. You can compare across rows of a matrix or columns of a matrix. And those, of course, are different. You know, you can't really deny that. Where it gets more controversial is one more important than the other, under what circumstances, how does that individual level difference in describing compatibility, how does that relate to population dynamics and community dynamics of our models, mm -hmm. that's when it starts to get controversial. But the basic idea that we can compare competitive effect or response, I think, is in, in retrospect, was a very simple one. Well, you came out with it. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, but also, you, related to that is the idea of that, that there's going to be an intermediary yeah. competition. Is that, was that part of those same set of ideas? It actually came later. So the first, you know, the first set was just thinking about when you do an experiment, are you comparing the ability of competitive effect, the ability of different species to suppress something, that's the effect, or are you comparing two species and how they respond to some neighbor, some suppressor. So that was, that's a net interaction. Um, it was a little bit later after that, first thinking about that idea, where I realized that there's also, if we start taking apart the process of competition, then you can think about effect and response in a somewhat different way. And one of the biggest mistakes I made in developing those ideas is using the same words for what are really two different things. Oh. So competitive effect is the net effect is the effect of, say, some neighbor species, let's say, on a target, where the target is the, the species, the individuals whose, whose um, change in fitness, growth, survival you're measuring. So you have effect on the target, and then you could also view that as a response of the target. So competitive effect and competitive response aren't two different things. They're just two different ways of comparing. Are you comparing those who are suppressing, or are you comparing those who are responding? But that's all net effect. Then I also started talking about, in another paper, the intermediary. And you can say one plant has an effect on a resource, not another plant. Mm -hmm. And another plant responds to that resource. So you basically have a resource depletion and a resource tolerance or resource efficient use of that resource. And those are really different things. Now, the net effect corresponds to effect on resources. Net response may or may not correspond to the response to resources. And I very foolishly use the same word for Tricky. both the mechanistic yeah. mm. and the non-mechanistic mm. version. And I've regretted that for <laughs> 20 years. <laughs> Does that dif distinction make yeah, sense? Yeah, I, I understand it. Yeah. But it's, it's subtle, but it's important. Yeah, it's very yeah. important yeah. because the net effect, um, the traits that affect net effect and net response don't necessarily translate into the same things that determine resource depletion effect and response to resources. They can be different sets of traits and depending on a whole range of conditions. The whole field of competition is, is mired down with terminology and disputes over terminology. Yes. As you well <laughs> there always is. And I, so it's, and it's I difficult. It's difficult. Clarity is difficult. Yeah. So moving forward, you, you, thankfully, you're still publishing in the Journal of Ecology. And you've had a few papers recently. In, in 2011, you had a paper with... Farr. Emily Farr. 
patterns and mechanisms of conspecific and heterospecific interactions in a dry perennial grassland. And then this year, with Herban, uh, community assembly by limiting similarity versus competitive hierarchies, testing the consequences of dispersion of individual traits. Um, so what are the, the, the background to these two papers? They're a little bit different um, to some of your earlier Quite work. different, and, um, and quite different from each other. They are, yeah. Um, the paper with Emily Farr, who's a PhD student of mine at the time, was she had some long-term data, or relatively long-term data, on the very small-scale dynamics on the scale of a couple of centimeters of um, stems in, in, short, in, a, uh, in a dry grassland. And she developed a model to try to look at quantify the competitive interactions, both intra- and interspecific, from the observational data. And then she also, at the same time, in a different paper, did some work on experimental mani mm -hmm. manipulations to see could those match. Um, and her result in that paper really surprised me and sort of went against some of the assumptions that we had made based on experimental work which was she found, as classical theory would say, that intraspecific competition was indeed greater than interspecific competition. That's our standard idea, mm -hmm. but we tend not to see that in experimental work. And so it was, it raised a whole lot of questions about, well, what is different about these models that we're trying to assess population dynamics from our short-term experiments? So it was a, a really... A revelation to me because I was not expecting that based on all the experimental work we've done. Mm. Sort of said, reminded me that experiments are not always the best way of getting at the, the questions, or not the only way to get at the questions. So this actually leads into the next, the recent paper, yeah. which is a modeling paper. Yes. Is it a wetlands modeling paper? It's a, yes. Yeah. This is quite different for you. This is quite different. Actually, we have both a dry grassland and a wetland that are being modeled in that paper. That that comes out of a whole series of papers that, that I've worked on together with Tomas Herbin at um, Charles University in Prague, where I became much more interested in, again, as the whole field was going, on traits. So if we're going to generalize about community dynamics, we need to understand things in terms of traits, not every single species, or can we do that? Mm -hmm. That's the way to generalize. And so initially, I started trying to do experiments with traits, where we manipulate traits. Well, I quickly realized that was going to be very difficult. You introduced so many artifacts. And I ended up collaborating with Tomas Herbin, who had developed a model of clonal plant community dynamics, where we could then, the idea was to parameterize a model so that it simulates a real community very well, and then you can manipulate the trait values in the model. So we do our experiments in silico instead of in the actual community. Um, and then try to match those as best we can with other things that, that we're doing and um, with experiments. But what we realized there, we were just playing with manipulating some traits and looking at trying to see what led to coexistence in these species. And what we found was that for certain traits we were manipulating, we were getting the more different the traits were the more likely they were to coexist. And of course, that's the complete opposite as of classical theory, which is you should be really different in order to mm. coexist. Mm. And that was true for some traits and not for other traits. And after um, thinking about it for 
not too long, we realized, well, that's because some traits, this relates to Chesson's very important ideas about stabilizing and equalizing factors, that for uh, traits that are related to niche differences, stabilizing factors, yes, you need to be more different. But the more similar you are in fitness can also contribute to coexistence and or in competitive interaction. So the more similar you are in competitive traits, the more likely you are to coexist. Because that habitat is good for that set of traits? It's that good for that set of traits, and the more similar you are, nobody has a strong competitive advantage. Hmm. And so if you combine that with small trait differences, you know, you have some small niche differences. Um, so for a given amount of niche difference, the more similar you are in competitability or sort of fitness in the absence of, of competitive interactions, the more likely you are to be able to coexist even long term. And that was Chesson's very important contribution. And we actually could use these models to show which traits are leading in this system to stabilizing mechanisms and which traits are leading to, to equalizing mechanisms. And therefore, it starts to provide a way of sorting out which traits do we expect to see more difference than you'd expect by chance in a community and which traits you might expect to see more similar than expected by chance. And those are really different, and most of the literature up until that point had been focusing on the differences. And here we, we started talking about, no, we have to look at both. We have to think about what trait we're looking at. All traits don't behave the same way. So, yeah, so, so having done that in the modeling, do you now need to go out and do the experiments that are <laughs> too difficult to do? Yeah. Um, we think... I think the traits, the traits are very hard approach. Um, and actually, we saw really nice um, um, some experiments that um, we're working on right now. They're actually trying to sort out what some of the traits mm -hmm. do directly. But you have to assemble communities with different traits. There are two ways of doing it. You can assemble communities with different traits, or you can try to manipulate the traits and see if you get rid of that trait or you change that trait, will they coexist? That that is really hard to do. You inevitably have interactions, and assembling communities from scratch means you also have lots of artifacts. They're not long-established communities. They're you know short-term. You don't have the soil feedbacks, etc. So I'm, I think there are some creative ways, and there are people going about some things in very creative ways. But I think the modeling approach is an essential essential complement to that. Yeah. Oh, I agree. Yeah. And and yeah. I think that um, we are trying to test some of these things that we can in field experiments, but we can go a lot faster and understand a lot more with these models. But the advantage of these kinds of models, unlike more analytical models, is that we are doing them in the context of real plants with real sets of co-adapted traits. So we start with real plants, and then we manipulate their mm -hmm. traits in that. And what you find is that with different sort of real plants, you might even get a different answer. So we get the contingency of our results as well. There's a growing interest, as you alluded to earlier, about phylogeny yeah. in community assembly. And so do, do you think that plays into some of these questions you're addressing now? I'm, I tend to be a skeptic of phylogenetic approaches. Um, I think the idea is that they're a shortcut for a lot of traits 
but I've been a skeptic of a lot of trait-based approaches in general, not because I don't think that's the right way to go, but because I think we tend to do it fairly carelessly and um, without thinking about what do those traits actually mean in terms of demography and interactions and are they plausible. We need shortcuts, mm -hmm. and traits and phylogeny are shortcuts, and we need them, but I think we need to do it thoughtfully. So I find the phylogeny doesn't tell us a whole lot about what the mechanisms are, whereas if we're dealing with functional traits, at least we have a better sense of what they are. So I find it a much more satisfying approach. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. So let's think about some of the other things you do. It looks like you're involved in some other areas of research outside of ecology, biomedical work and, and STEM issues. We haven't seen those in the Journal of Ecology course. Yep. But, you know, yeah. <laughs> no, you this haven't. Is some, some quite different areas of work. They are. And uh, both of them are fairly serendipitous, which is the way a lot of things mm -hmm. work in science. Um, I happened to go to have some free time and went to a conference on, I was on sabbatical, and I went to a workshop on, a one-day one day workshop symposium on the human microbiome and the and and the, the ecology of the human microbiome. This was maybe five or six years ago, and all the speakers would get up and say, talk about the diverse community of bacteria in this part of the human biome or this part of the human body, et cetera. And then, and always sometime during the talk, they would say, well, I'm not an ecologist, but... but. And then they would give some interpretation that, you know, from ecology that was 20 years old. Mm. And so I found myself keeping saying, well, I am an ecologist, and, um, you know, we might want to think about it this way. And at the end of that symposium, the organizer, who has since become a very close colleague and friend, pulled me in and said, you're going to work with me. <laughs> And um, she's a microbiologist um, and, and uh, epidemiologist in the School of Public Health. And so we just began working on, uh, you know, pulling me in kind of as a consultant on projects about different parts of the human microbiome, and, you know, from the succession of microbes on catheters and mm. how does that, and how is that related to when you get a urinary tract infection um, to... Uh, just did have one on um, a whole dissertation. I was on a dissertation committee of somebody who looked at the community of microbes on hands of healthcare workers, and how the background community of microbes affects is is related to whether or not there will be pathogens carried mm -hmm. by these healthcare workers between patients. And basically, this is all community ecology. Absolutely. So some of the ideas that we have can yeah. be transferred to, yep. to, to the yep. field. So it's been really fun, and I. Yeah, I'm certified for human subjects research, which as a plant ecologist, I never, ever mm -hmm. thought I would be. So it's it's actually been very interesting and very fun. That is, that is, maybe you should do something, bring something back to the ecological field, yeah. about what you found from that. Right, I and I, I'm, I'm not sure what that... I'm, You're they, still teaching I'm them. Sp <laughs> well, no, it's... Uh, I just haven't quite figured out what they are because... The um, the medical world, less public health. The medical world tends to has tended to be a lot less theoretical, a lot more trial and error. Public health tends to be dealing with large. You know, they're mm -hmm. used to large sample sizes, and therefore, you know, looking for more general results. Mm -hmm. so it's have very different cultures. Oh, the data sets are fantastic. Yes, yes, and and the merger of community of of 
ecology with microbial ecology is going with with the human microbiome is going really fast these yeah. days. There's a huge amount going on. So yeah. that's it's an exciting area. Excellent. Um, the STEM what. That is, I've gotten, as a department chair, that comes out of my work as, as an administrative, mm-hmm. administrative aspects of my work, um, STEM education, trying to get more students as a, as a teacher, seeing students just drop out of biology because they couldn't do the math or they couldn't do the physics, and it would just break my heart. And this was especially true for students who came from, you know, underserved high schools, um, you know, they... They didn't have the educational capital from their parents. They just didn't have the background. And they would just get thrown off by all the quantitative skills that were necessary. And it would just break my heart because they loved biology. Mm-hmm. And, and STEM, so STEM is science, teaching, is, engineering, and education. No, it's, well, STEM, the STEM fields are science, technology, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And so we talk about STEM education mm-hmm. and and the United States government has put a huge amount into efforts to try to increase the number of students getting degrees in STEM Mm. fields, and my concern has been especially about increasing diversity in STEM fields, because we know there's a greater risk of losing students who come with less preparation. Um, They tend to see the math and go away. And so we've been developing a lot of programs. towards doing that and so some of my you know my biggest grants are not science grants they're education mm-hmm. grants Mother's to try to do that <laughs> yeah and it's yeah. and it's really important and very satisfying to actually see you get a very short term response and and a very positive response so when you see these students who might not have made it through are staying through and they're loving their science and they're doing well it's incredibly satisfying mm. so mm. that's that's probably an ever-increasing part of my, my work uh, these days. I was going to ask where, what the future for you is as a scientist. Is it going to be in the STEM area? Is it going to continue in, in the education, that's, I mean, I'm going to continue all of it. It's I, you know, one of the very lucky things for, for my whole career has been this ability to do all of these different things mm-hmm. and enjoy all of them. Yeah. And uh, not everybody who gets to say that, so I feel incredibly lucky. Absolutely, yeah. So working with with these um, these young students, you know, what sort of advice would you have for for someone that says, "I want to be a scientist like you, <laughs> Professor Goldberg"? What would you tell them? I would tell them to make sure you love doing it, because if you're not happy and having fun doing it, you're not going to be particularly good at it. You know, the best thing you can do in life is to be enjoying what you're doing every day. Um, so don't you know? Choose a system that you like. Choose, choose work that you like and that you're excited and passionate about and have a little bit of patience. Sounds like good advice. Well, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It was very fun. Thank you.